to answer David's question, I'm not exactly sure how many parts this series will end up being, but uh, I notice he hasn't said how many parts this Hezekiah series is going to end up being either, so uh, we're kind of on the same footing there a little bit, I guess. Uh, It won't be any longer than it needs to be, I can assure you of that, and if it makes you feel any better, we could still be in chapter one uh, if, if I wanted to be, so... I hope that you've uh, gotten something out of this series in Ephesians. I've, I can't tell of another time when I've studied the Scriptures when I've received more personal edification. And I hope I've been able to communicate some of that uh, to you. For those of you that are visiting, please don't feel like you're not going to get anything out of this this morning. I try to make these, each one of these as self-contained as I possibly can. And, I, and we're certainly going to do a lot of recap, as this is sort of the conclusion, if you will, of the first half of the book of Ephesians. And I think that's really what Paul is doing in this passage we're going to cover is he's recapping and he's reminding them of everything that he's talked about and wants them to know and to understand and to be strengthened by uh, as, as we go into this last uh, section. If you'll remember last time, Paul concluded a, a sort of a parenthetical statement about his imprisonment and how he wanted them to not be discouraged by that. Uh, their role in God's eternal purpose and plan that was being played out. It was all according to God's will. And so now he's going to conclude this, this section uh, with a prayer. And much as he did in chapter 1, concluded chapter 1 with a prayer, he's coming back and he's praying that they will be strengthened by all the information that he's given them. And it's a transition into the second half of the book, which is all about practical application, living the Christian life in response to what God has done for us. You know, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's asking them, this is how I want you to live, or telling them, this is how I want you to live. And you might ask yourself this question, as I did, why didn't Paul just start with, this is how to live your life as a Christian? Why didn't he just say, if you want to be a Christian, this is how you're supposed to live, this is what you're supposed to say, this is what you're supposed to do, this is how you're supposed to treat other people. These are the kind of relationships. Why didn't you just start with that? Well, the answer is in the word therefore, which means look before, as we've already talked about, and that is consequently. Because of everything that I've talked to you about, everything that we've discussed, every truth that's been revealed from God's word, these truths are the why behind what you do. It makes any behavior that you have in your life worthwhile and means something, impossible even. It means that Christianity is not simply behavior modification. It means that Paul isn't telling them, if you live this way, you'll be saved. What he's telling them is, you have been saved, now live this way. This is the way you live. Because here's the thing, no matter how well-behaved we are, No matter how moral a life that we live, eventually we're going to commit sin. It's it's an inevitability. That's just who we are as people. We're going to rebel against God at some point and commit sin. Every single person has done it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And no matter how well we live after that or before that, we cannot remove even one little sin that exists between us and God. There's nothing we can do about it. That sin has to be dealt with. And the only way that can happen is through everything that Paul has talked about up until this point. And that is God's eternal plan and purpose in the gospel being realized through Christ Jesus. 
And so that's why he spends all this time talking about theology. It's very important. And what he's telling him is these things that I've already talked about, when you get that, when you understand it, it makes real behavior change possible and it makes it meaningful. You know, there are people in the world that are atheists that live pretty good moral lives. Is there anything inherently, quote-unquote, wrong with that? Well, their lives are probably better. The lives of the people they're around are, are probably better. But that's where it stops. That's where it ends. Their salvation, eternal salvation, is still on the line. And real meaningful change can't happen in our lives without the work that God has done in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, Paul concludes this section by saying, to him be glory. And that's what it all comes down to. Glory to God for what he has done for us. Because what he's done for us was only possible through the gospel. And if you will, the gospel is the epicenter of the book of Ephesians, as we'll see here in a few minutes. So we talked last time about how he begins chapter 3. And he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he breaks off, and for the next 12 verses, makes a parenthetical statement about his imprisonment, his ministry, and everything that goes along with that, why it's so important for them to not be discouraged. And then he picks back up in verse 14, and he says again, for this reason, which he's going back up to before, I bow my knees before the Father. I pray this prayer for this reason. So let's remember where Paul was before he breaks off, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's talking about the family of God coming together, Jew and Gentile, coming together to be members of the household of God, fellow citizens of his kingdom, joined together, built together, that togetherness, that unity that exists in the church between both Jew and Gentile, regardless of background, regardless of gender, regardless of master or servant, uh, whatever the case may be. We've all come together into the household of God. And so he's hearkening back to that when he references the family of God. Now, I mentioned last time I had a verse that I thought was better translated in the King James or New King James, and we find that again today. This verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. I think the New King James and the, and the King James get it, get it right in this case, at least better. Not necessarily, it's not necessarily wrong in the ESV, but I think it's better this way, the whole family. Because not every family on earth is named after the Father. The whole family of God is named after the Father. My last name is Westbrooks, no T, right? I get that from my father. I got my, I got my last name from my dad. He's, he's Mike Westbrooks. He got his last name from his dad, who was Wally Westbrooks, and so on and so forth. We get our name, Christian, if you want to call it Christian, or whatever name you want to call it. He's, what he's talking about is ownership in the family. We are the family of God, and so... The whole family is named after the Father. And so Paul, this, this idea of family, this idea of the household of God, is what's motivating Paul at this point to say, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And also I think everything else that has come before that as well. 
because he's wanting them to get and to understand everything that he's talked about that has led them to this place of being the family of God and the household of God. He's wanting them to understand that and be strengthened by it. And so he says in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. And he's going to go on to say more detail what he wants God to grant them. But notice where this is based from. Paul likes to use this, this phrase, according to, a lot. We've, we've come across it several times in the book of Ephesians. So this prayer, he's praying that God will, according to what? The riches of his glory, grant them certain things. He wants them to be given these things, and these things come from one place, and that is the riches of his glory. Now, we could spend all kinds of time breaking down this phrase and finding where it appears in other places in Scripture and all that, which is very useful to do, and do that on your own time, please. But I think what he's simply referencing here is everything that he's talked about up to this point. The riches of God's glory have been on display for the entire letter of the book of Ephesians up to this point. And so I want to spend just a few minutes this morning sort of recapping in greater detail than we normally do on our, on our very quick recap about what Paul has talked to them about. Because what I think those things are, those things are the riches of his glory that he's already referenced. So that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. What are the riches of his glory? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This is the thesis statement, if you will, of the first half and I think the entire book of Ephesians. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, and we should bless him or praise him for that. This is really what it's all about. And Paul spends the rest of the book of Ephesians telling us how to do that. What are some of those blessings that we talked about in chapter 1? And we don't have time to read all these this morning, but I've got some Scripture references up here if you're taking notes. Also, you're always welcome to get a copy of my notes later if, if I move too fast for you. First of all, we're chosen and predestined in Christ, verses 4 and 5. God's plan before the foundation of the world was that we would be redeemed in Christ. We talked a little bit about refuting the Calvinist ideas behind this passage and all that. We don't have time to get into that, but we know that God's plan before the world was formed, that we would be chosen and predestined in Christ and adopted as sons in Christ, as he says in verse 5 as well. We are God's children. We have an inheritance that's based on him. We have grace and redemption in Christ Jesus because of his work on the cross, the blood that was shed. Just about knocked my microphone off. Grace and redemption in Christ. His will made known in Christ. The mystery that he talks about in chapter 3 being revealed, the mystery that the Jews and the Gentiles come together, that will has been made known in Christ. We have an inheritance in Christ. We have that eternal life waiting for us one day because of what Christ has done for us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a, as a promise, as a guarantee of our inheritance. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And within these, these blessings that we see listed here very briefly, but also very comprehensively, we see the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all accomplished through God's great plan and the mighty work that he did in Christ. And that's the next thing he talks about in Ephesians chapter 1. He, he prays that prayer that they'll, they'll have uh, enlightenment. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul says, these things I've just talked about, I want you to know these and understand them and feel them 
and recognize where they come from. He says, I want you to know the hope to which you were called. Not a nebulous hope, like I hope I win the lottery, but I know there's a home in heaven for me, and I have hope in this life because of that. The riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Your value in God's eyes. How valuable you are to Him. You are His glorious inheritance. And the lengths that God has gone to to make sure that that inheritance becomes His one day. The immeasurable greatness of His power towards us. Unfathomable, unmeasurable, unknowable. This power that is directed towards you and I, that it's, as Paul says in our text this morning, that is already at work within us, was given to us, and that was done by what God did when He worked His great might in Christ. When He did what? When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in His right hand. The resurrection and exaltation of Christ. When He gave Him all authority and power, set Him far above all the rulers and authorities, both earthly and spiritual. And he seated him in his right hand and he made him as head over the church. Paul says, I want you to know these things and understand. And this section right here, Ephesians chapter 1, 20 through 23 or so, that's what I was referencing earlier when I said the epicenter of Ephesians is right there. Everything flows out from there. I recommend you sit down and study those verses in great detail, make as many connections as you can because everything that Paul is talking about is it's an epicenter of a spiritual earthquake that's flowing out from those verses that if you really understand it can make a powerful impact in your life. He goes on in chapter 2 to talk about being raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. He says in verse 5, even when we were dead, In our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so he talks about how in the first part of that, how we were in spiritual death. We were dead in our sins, walking the course of this world, the course of the power, the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. That's Satan. You're like all the rest of the sons of disobedience in this world. But he says something happened. You were raised to spiritual life. You were given new life. And from the riches of God's mercy and His love, what did He do? He raised us with Christ. Paul said He raised us with Christ. And so this great and mighty work back in chapter 1 that he talked about where He raised Christ and exalted Him and seated Him in His right hand. He raised us with Christ and He seated us with Christ and He exalted us with Christ. That's where it all flows from. And he said it all happens because of grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything that caused God to make that happen other than the fact that he loved us and wanted us to be reconciled to him or be saved. And all that happened through our faith in what he did. It doesn't just automatically happen. God doesn't say, I want them to be saved and here's Jesus and now they're saved. We have to respond in faith to what he's done to us. The riches of his glory are on full display all throughout these chapters. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so he's taking it now from a, from a very personal, individual level and making it more about the unity that we have as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ. You've been brought near by the blood. And he's talking specifically to Gentiles, but it applies to anyone who's caught up in sin. And that is you were once separated and alienated and strangers and without hope. But now you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ who is our peace. 
And he talks about the insignificance of our heritage. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, neither one of those things matter anymore. You're now the family of God in Christ Jesus because Christ has made peace between Jew and Gentile and he's made peace between God and mankind. And so Jew and Gentile have been brought together into the household of God, which as a body has been reconciled to God. And now we're citizens and we're family and we have a strong foundation that's based on the apostles and the prophets with Jesus being the cornerstone of that foundation. And as we individually grow and mature and come to understand what God has done for us, we come together as a family and we grow and mature and become way more than the sum of our parts growing in Christ. And so he has that parenthetical statement in chapter 3 where he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He says, yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I'm in prison because of preaching the gospel of Jesus. Yes, because I'm in, pri- I'm in prison because of I preach the gospel to you Gentiles. But don't lose heart because of that. This stewardship that I have, he says, is a stewardship of grace. A gospel ministry that's a ministry of grace. I don't view it as a, as a burden that God has foisted upon me, but rather a privilege and an honor, one that I don't deserve to take part in God's stewardship of His household. He talks about that mystery that was revealed, the fact that Jew and Gentile are partakers of the same promise. They're part of the same family. And how that was hidden before, the true nature of how that would happen, how the Gentiles would be reconciled was hidden in the Old Testament. It has now been revealed in the New Testament. He talked about the missions that he had to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and bring to light the plan, the mystery, the gospel. And that was in part to show God's manifold wisdom, his wisdom to make known to, the, to not only the whole world, but also to all those fallen angels that had rebelled against him to show their folly. In their own wisdom, they thought, I'll rebel against God and I'll have my own power and I can be my own person and I'll tempt these people that God has created to have the same ideas in their mind. And that's what Satan said to Eve. You can be like God's. You can have it your way. You can do whatever you want. But God said, that's foolish. That's folly. I'm going to show you real wisdom. I'm going to show you what it takes to take a people who were once dead in their sins and not only to make them alive again, but also to exalt them to my own family and make them my own. That's the wisdom of God. And it was all part of God's eternal purpose. His will from before the world was created. His will that the world would know, that those fallen angels would know exactly what wisdom really is. And you know, we've not even scratched the surface when it comes to God's, the riches of his glory. Just barely scratched. In fact, when we went into these things in greater detail in each one of these sermons, we, we barely scratched the surface then. And I want to encourage each of you in your own private study at some point to go and really study the first three chapters of this amazing letter. And you're going to find riches there. You're going to find the riches of God's glory in those pages. So, there's a lot going on in this section of verses here. Again, I could easily make this four sermons if I wanted to. I'm not going to subject you to that. Again, I recommend you study this on your own, but we're going to break this down into four areas in which Paul is praying for, for them to understand and to realize. Number one, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened 
with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul wants them to be strengthened by all this information. And he's praying that God will strengthen them by them understanding what he's really done for them. You know, strength is an interesting thing to think about. When I hear the word strength, what I immediately think of is physical strength. Uh, you may not believe it, but there was a time in my life when I was in better shape and stronger than I am right now. That was, that was the case at one point in time. Uh, that might be hard for you to believe. I don't know. But you know, physical strength fades. And yeah, we can work out, we can exercise, we can eat better than I should be eating right now. I should be doing that. We can do those things, and that can help us. There is some profit. It doesn't say bodily profit doesn't, bodily exercise doesn't profit at all. Bodily exercise profiteth a little, right? It does profit some. But you can't beat the clock. Every single person in this room is dying. Now, there are some people who might be closer to it than others, but the moment we enter life, despite the fact we understand the prime of life, or we think of the prime of life as you know, somewhere around 21 to 25 years old or whatever, we understand that the moment we take our first breath, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, our outer self is wasting away. The minute we're born, we start dying. And whatever strength we can gain in this life, it's not going to last. Though our outer self is wasting away, what? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. It's ironic that as our outer self wastes away, whether it's slowly or very quickly, our inner self should be gaining strength, should be renewed day by day. And Paul is telling him, all this information I've given you about what God has done for you and his eternal purpose and his plan and how he accomplished that, when you dwell on that, when you think about that every single day of your life, that's going to give you strength in your inner being. A strength that you can't get anywhere else. The things that we face in this life, the challenges that we have to overcome, the relationships that we deal with, those things become possible it becomes possible for us to be strong enough to handle those things when we realize truly what God has done for us. And he says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. You know, there's a lot of discussion uh, in religious communities about what the indwelling is. There's the indwelling of Christ. There's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Does the indwelling of Christ relate to the indwelling of the Spirit? Is that how it happens? I was talking to Trevor about this a few weeks ago. He was telling me some, it was a debate or a study or a book that he had read where several men in the church had come together to talk about the indwelling of the Spirit, and none of them agreed point for point on what it actually means. And I'm certainly not going to be here today to give you all the answers to that. Does the, the Spirit dwell within us? We know it does. Why? Because the Bible says it does. Does Jesus, can Jesus dwell in our hearts through faith? Yes, he can, because the Scriptures tells us he can. And I see this word dwell here is, carries with it a connotation of, of Christ being welcome in our hearts, a place where he's welcome. We dwell in places where we feel safe and at home and comfortable. We dwell in our homes, right? This is making, a, making room, making a place in our lives where Christ is welcome and where he wants to come and to dwell. It basically means that Christ is in our lives. 
every aspect of our lives. Everything that we do, everything that we think, Christ is there and welcome at all times. And so he says, I want you to have an inner being that is strengthened to the point where Christ is welcome there and comes and dwells within your hearts. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, it says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so here he's talking about the household of God or the church coming together and growing together to be a dwelling place for God. And so that can't happen unless we individually have made room for Jesus in our own lives. And the knowledge of what God has done for us, the price that was paid, the lengths that he's gone to in order to accomplish that is a strong motivating factor in letting, making room for him in our lives. And when that happens, we then come together and God is dwelling with us as a family as well. We are a dwelling place for God. Number three, rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend. What's he want them to comprehend? With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So when he's talking about the, the breadth and the height and the width here, in comprehending, he's talking about the love of Christ is what he's talking about. And I find it interesting in the way he words this. First of all, the word comprehend. You know, I have, my wife is a teacher, and I know some of you are teachers as well, and so I, I think of the phrase reading comprehension. That's one of the big things that teachers have to, to handle, especially with younger kids, is reading comprehension. It's not enough just to be able to spell the words and to read the words in a sentence. You know, you can ask a kid, hey, read this sentence, and then say, okay, good job. You did it perfectly. What does that mean? I don't know. They don't comprehend it. They just know the words and know how to say the sentence, but they don't know what they've just read. They don't understand it. And what Paul is saying here is, I want you to comprehend the love of Christ. I don't want you to just read the words that I've written to you and to even mildly understand what I'm saying and be able to sort of order these in a logical manner, but I want you to truly comprehend not just the words I've written to you, but truly comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of Christ. I want you to know the love of Christ. Really understand it. And here's the funny thing. He says it surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something that you can't ever fully learn, that you can't ever fully know. You know, he uses the same language in Philippians chapter 6, talking about the peace of God. Excuse me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We believe this, don't we? That through the power of prayer, we can approach God, and we don't have to be anxious about what's going on in our lives. We can give it to God, as the saying says, and what happens? There's a peace that comes with that. How does that peace work? What does it, what does it mean? What are the nuts and bolts of that? Well, he says it really surpasses all understanding. We can't really explain it to the point where we can truly wrap our heads around it, but we know it's there. And we don't have to truly understand everything about it to know that it works. And I think that's kind of the same thing what he's saying here about the love of Christ. Now, he's explained a lot about the love of Jesus in the book of Ephesians. And he's not saying here you can't know anything about it. He's saying, I want you to know. I want you to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. But what this tells us is the love of Jesus is vast. 
It is immeasurable. And no matter how much we dig into it, we can always learn something new. And that's what he's saying. I want, I want you to have that, that God is going to give you that. He's going to give you the strength in your inner being and make you rooted and grounded in love so you can comprehend the love of Christ. Make, make that be that kind of person you are that is always, you know, I don't understand. If you were to pin me down today and say, why did, why did Jesus love us? Why did Jesus love you, Jason? I don't know that I can give you a definitive answer to that. Now, I have ideas and theories that I can read from the scriptures and, you know, I can relate my love for my own children. But at the end of the day, why would God look down on me and say, I love you? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm willing to try and find the answer. And understanding what God has done for me makes me want to do that more. And I hope it's the same for you. Finally, he says in verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is one, another one of those statements that maybe we can't fully understand how this works. But you know, he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, when he talks about God exalting Christ and sitting in his right hand, about his authority over the church, it says he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over the church, over all things to the church, which is his body, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Whatever we are filled with is, is what our life is about. And I'm hoping I'm saying that in a way you can understand it. What are you filled with? What is it that consumes you? What is it that drives you? What has is, what is life filled you with? Has it filled you with entertainment? Has it filled you with, you know, recreation, money, your career, sin? What is it that fills us? Paul says, I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. We've made so much room in our lives for Jesus. We've made our lives so much a dwelling place for Jesus. There's not room for anything else. He's number one. He's the top dog. And nothing can knock him off. If we focus on that, if we make him, make our lives a place for him, he'll fill that. And that happens in the church. The body is the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's where it's found. You know, Christianity is not an individual effort. God didn't design it to be that way. That's exactly the whole point of Ephesians up to this point is God did this for you individually, but guess what? It's not just for you. Now you come together and be part of this body that's growing together and that's being filled together. Your life is being filled and the body makes itself grow when it's in Christ. It's all, it's, it's, it's like a cycle and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Paul says, this is what I want you to be strengthened by. This is what I want you to know. And I pray that God gives this to you through the riches of his glory. Let's think about the significance of this prayer for just a second. What is Paul praying for here? Paul's not saying, I pray that God through the riches of his glory, will give you a good marriage. That through the riches of his glory, God will make you a good parent, a good mother or a father, 
or a brother or sister. He's not praying that God, through the riches of his glory, will let them overcome adversity and overcome sin in their lives. He's not praying that God will, will make you want to go out and preach the gospel even. Is it wrong to pray for those things? Absolutely not. I recommend you do pray for those things. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. It's okay to pray for the things that we need. But why didn't Paul pray for all those things? Why didn't he pray that they would be a people who would live the right kind of life and that they would go out and be good parents or fathers or mothers? Because he understood where the source of that is. He understood that if they get all this stuff, if they understand what God has done for them, then all those things are going to fall into place organically. The love of God, His grace towards us, the fulfillment of that plan, our reconciliation at the cross, our exaltation with Christ at God's right hand, our demonstration of God's wisdom to the world and to the, to the spiritual realm. If you get that, you're going to be a good mom and dad. You're going to have a good marriage. If you get that, you're going to be able to come overcome adversity. If you get that, you're going to be able to overcome sin. If you get that, you're going to go out and tell everyone you can about the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. If you get this, God gets you. Pure and simple. That is the significance of this prayer. And that's why he concludes it by saying this. Now to him who is able. You know that word able? When I first read this, it, didn't feel, it doesn't feel strong enough to me. Oh, I'm able to do this. Many of you remember Sister Lily Mae Perkins. You'd ask her how she's doing and she'd be happy to tell you how she was doing. Well, I'm able to sit up and take nourishment. That was my favorite line that she had. And I think of the word able and I think, just barely able. But that's not at all what he's saying here. He's not saying God is just barely able to do these things. What he's saying is everything that you can ask for or think or imagine in your own mind, God is able and he's more than able. He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. God isn't just able. He's way more than able way more than able to do what is necessary. In fact, he's already done it. That power, according to the power at work within us. That power that's ours, not because it's mine inherently, because I deserve it or earned it. That power that's at work within me because of the work that he did in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand and placed him above all authority and power and made him his head over the church. And what is Paul's conclusion to this whole thing? To him be glory. To him be glory in the church. That's, what, that's where it all comes back to. God has accomplished this through the riches of his glory. What kind of person does that make you want to be? That makes me ashamed of the way I live my life sometimes as I look at, my, at what I do from day to day and I forget this as we often do. God has given us so much from the riches of his glory and he says to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And so this change 
that happens in our behavior that he's going to talk about in chapters 4 through 6, that change only becomes possible. And it only becomes meaningful when we're in Christ Jesus. And we've harped over this over and over and over. And how many times throughout just the first few chapters of this letter where Paul says this happens in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in him, in the beloved, over and over and over. This is the only place it happens. And that's why Paul doesn't start with, this is how you live your life. What he's saying here is, this is how you live your life, and the only way you can do it, and the only way it has any meaning is in Christ Jesus. And the question we have to ask ourselves today is, are we in Christ Jesus? Do we have a strength in our inner being that makes a dwelling place for Jesus? Do we have the strength to comprehend even a small amount of the uncomprehendable love of Jesus Christ? Are we being filled with the things of God? If you've never met the blood of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, through your faith in what he's done for you, there's no better time than right now to take care of that. And we offer Christ's invitation. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That rest is found only in him. Make that your decision today to give your life to Jesus, to become part of the family of God and partake in the blessings that we've talked about this morning. If you need to do that or if you need the prayers of this congregation, please have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.